New Testament, uh, the glory given to God through singing. And I just want to express mine, I, I know a shared uh, affection, as you have as well for the choir, to sing, to honor the Lord God through their lips and raising their voices. Um, it, it is a wonderful ministry. Music is, is a wonderful ministry, instrumentation, and uh, through singing. And uh, I'd encourage you to join, speak to Pastor Weiler if you have skills in that, in that regard. Praise the Lord. I've titled this message, as I said earlier, Out with the Old and In with the New. That will pretty much summarize uh, what we are to discuss. There's been a lot of speculation uh, and error concerning this section of Scripture that we're in. Scores of people have distorted it. They've contorted it. Uh, The parable of the wineskins. Sometimes it's distorted to further an agenda uh, by assigning arbitrary meanings or values to the wine, to the wineskins, etc., Uh, I'll acknowledge at first glance, you read it through briefly, and and it is difficult to process at first reading, especially if you proof text it, meaning you just read verses 36 through 39. Uh, If you just do that, it's near impossible to understand. Uh, But fortunately, we enter this section of Scripture with a context. In fact, the parable of the wineskins, it isn't even a new section of Scripture. It's actually a continuation of the section that we've already been studying. Here, Jesus and his disciples, as we learned last week, they have been criticized by the Pharisees for associating with sinners. And as we learned previously, the Pharisees then, they reprimand his disciples, not directly to Jesus, But they go to his disciples and reprimand them for attending a grand, a great banquet that is thrown in honor of Jesus by the tax collector named Levi. We also know the Pharisees are characterized in Scripture as being very self-righteous. They love to put on religious display, love to show themselves as being religious, uh, their every outward behavior is, is designed to bring attention to themselves as to how devout they were. We know from Jesus' statement in Matthew 23, verse 27, that in, on the inside they are full of dead men's bones and all kinds of uncleanness. Outside, religious. Inside, spiritually dead we discover in verse 33 of Luke chapter 5 that the Pharisees are not only offended uh, that Jesus was found feasting with tax collectors eating and enjoying the company uh, with food and, and, and in the company of other sinners as well they are further offended that Jesus and his disciples do not fast So in their eyes then, Jesus is unspiritual. Unspiritual. Pharisees had distorted the act of fasting into a religious exercise that would improve your spirituality. If you remember from last week, a Pharisee who prayed at the temple bragged about he 
how he practiced this twice a week. He fasted twice a week, mistakenly believing that that act itself made him righteous. That that act itself translated into spirituality. It did not then, and it still does not today. And since in their minds, fasting made one spiritual, uh, obviously laughing, feasting, enjoying others uh, at a, at a uh, banquet made a person unspiritual. They don't do what we do. They must be unspiritual. So they referred to Jesus as a wine bib and as a glutton, criticizing him for eating and drinking. There are many churches today who embrace the, the same type of theology. Uh, they're, by their behavior, they, they suggest that the more somber you are, the more, the more sorrowful you are, the, the more um, unhappy that you appear to be, the more religious you must happen to be. The more miserable you are appear, you, that you appear, obviously you must be more spiritual. And, and every time you go into the church, whether it's, one Sunday or another, it's always like a funeral. You've probably been to those one ty- types of places. But here in this context, we observe Jesus and his disciples. They're celebrating. They're, they're feasting. And let's read the passage together as we begin. Beginning in verse 33. And they said to him, The disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, You cannot make the attendants of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But those days will come. And when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. And Jesus was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise he will both tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wineskins into old wineskins, or new wine into old wineskins, excuse me. Otherwise the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled out, and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new For he says, the old is good enough. This narrative of Luke appears to suggest in verse 33 that it is the Pharisees speaking. As as they were previously revealed as the ones who were grumbling against Jesus' disciples in verse 30. But the Gospel of Matthew actually suggests that this question comes from the disciples of John the Baptist. It reads in Matthew 9.14, the disciples of John came to Jesus asking, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? It seems as though Luke writes in this manner, using the, the, the term they came and asked Jesus, to suggest it was the Pharisees behind the line of questioning. It appears that just as the Pharisees had already kind of accosted Jesus' disciples uh, in verse 30, they seized an opportunity here to stir discontent with the disciples of John. 
They wanted to disturb uh, the disciples uh, perceiving this loose behavior of Jesus. And John, if you remember, he had a ministry of calling Israel to confess their sins and then to lament over their sins as he preached the baptism of repentance. Uh, thus, the disciples of John were accordingly familiar with the f- act of fasting, the behavior of fasting. And, and if you were with us through the book of Jonah, as we worked through that, uh, you learned that fasting was, in the ancient world, an expression of deep remorse over sin, especially sin's consequences. That was fasting's purpose in the Bible. Uh, Israel recognized this. And the prophets of Israel, or they wrote broadly about it, even pagan Nineveh, if you remember from working through the book of Jonah, they knew that the appropriate response to God's judgment was to fast and to put on sackcloth and to sit in ashes. Because the judgment of God was coming for their sins, they mourned over their sins. Fasting is an expression of humility, an expression of loss, an expression of sorrow, especially over sin. This is consistent through the Old and the New Testaments. Anyone who has taught you that fasting is a method to get your way with God or to increase your odds of landing a job or a job promotion, uh, that's gravely mistaken. That's not a purpose of fasting. It's not a method. It's not a mechanism. You won't find that in Scripture. Fasting is also not in itself a mechanism to improve spirituality. That was the mistake of the Pharisees. If it were such a means, trust me, the apostles in the New Testament letters would inform us of that. But they don't. They would have prescribed it for such a purpose. But the letters do not. In fact, quite the contrary, we are warned. We are warned uh, along with uh, other forms of austerity. And this would include, if you read through Colossians, legalistic abstinence of, of food and drink. Colossians 2 verse 23 assures Christians, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Abstinence provides zero value against indulgence of the flesh. It's the stuff that that Paul warns about, uh, the stuff of religious imposters, Pharisees. But for the Pharisees, Fasting provided, provided an appearance of spiritual wisdom. So they would fast, they would announce it, they'd distort their faces, they would look somber and sad and hungry. You see, they even realized from the Old Testament writings that they would peruse that it was an expression of sadness, of sorrow. They, they knew that, uh, along with wearing sackcloth and sitting in ashes. Uh, Fasting was a legitimate expression of a genuine heart of sorrow. Of sorrow. But by the period 
of the Pharisees, by the time of the Pharisees, fasting had become not an issue of the heart, not an expression of the heart, but an outward expression of, of religion, an outward expression of piety. No true sorrow of the heart. That's what makes Jesus mad. Hypocrites. Today, fasting has again in our day been distorted to, to offer a means or a mechanism to gain spirituality. It's to the same detriment, folks. Even worse, false pr- prosperity preachers will tell you that fasting is a way to fill your coffers for God to open up his, his blessing of money. Scripture gives no evidence of that whatsoever. And fasting has been misconstrued. It has been contorted into a tool not of mourning over sin, not of sorrow over loss, but of manipulation of God and others. That's what it had become in Jesus' time. Uh, Often you will see that today. If you have other questions on fasting, you can go back online. We had a message, Biblical Fasting, on January 8th that discussed what happened in Jonah's day and why Nineveh uh, fasted. Another good one would be Spirit-Filled Christian, September 24th, when we look at Jesus in the wilderness and and his uh, behavior there. Um, They will answer a lot of questions in that. Folks, the Old Covenant, it, it was a very visible covenant. Very visible. We had the temple sacrifices in that time. Uh, Levitical law provided, uh, for, uh, provided the eye with lots of imagery. You had the, the vestments of the priests, and you had the burning of the incense. You had the sacrifices uh, on the altar. You had the grand temple. Uh, they were, were imagery through which Israel could understand God. They could learn about God and, and His greatness and His glory. But they've been distorted by men. The imagery of the Old Testament had been distorted by men. Let me offer just one example uh, so you can see what I'm talking about. And this would be through the use of phylacteries. Phylacteries. I think I have a picture here. That box with the uh, band up there. That would be called a phylactery. If you're not familiar, they are a box, they're a leather box with scripture references tucked inside of them. They were tied using a type of band to the head uh, and to the forearm, or frontals, the frontals and to the arm and, and the upper arm. Folks, this is for real. We have another, there you can see it tied to the arm, uh, banded and strapped to the arm and to the head. Uh, this, this is for real. This is still practiced today. You'll still see it today. It's a form of religion. Where do they get this? Where do they get this? Well, they get it from Exodus. The law clearly stated that Israelites must offer up the firstborn male of every womb to God. The sacrifice was to act as a memorial uh, to how, God, how the firstborn of Israel was left untouched by God as the firstborn of Egypt was stricken by God. The angel of, of death during the tenth plague did not hit Israel. It only hit Egypt as Egypt perished. And, and the practice of offering the firstborn recalls how Israel belongs to God. 
And the firstborn male belongs to the Lord, uh, not to destruction. And, and you either had to sacrifice that firstborn from the womb, or in the case of a child, a human child, you had to redeem him with a lamb. You had to exchange out. The lamb would be sacrificed. And you might remember from Luke uh, chapter 1 how the law permitted poor families, if in the case of uh, Jesus' parents, to offer in its place two turtle doves or two pigeons. Remember? If you were a poor family, the law had a, had a situation that you could exchange those for the lamb if you couldn't afford a lamb. So Joseph and Mary were quite poor. But we find this command in Exodus 13, verse 11. Listen to this. It says, Now when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, meaning into the promised land, as he swore to you and to your fathers and gives it to you, you shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. And the first offspring of every beast that you own, the males belong to the Lord. But every first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. That is the law. Numbers 18 verse 15 clarifies that that male children cannot be sacrificed. That is not permitted under any circumstance. Neither could unclean animals. They had to be redeemed with a lamb. Donkeys were ceremonially unclean animals. They could not be offered as sacrifices at the temple. They could not be offered to the Lord as a sacrifice. So the firstborn male colt of a donkey had to be redeemed. Had to be redeemed. Exodus continues. But if you do not redeem, speaking of the colt fool, then you shall break its neck. And every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. No option for the sons. You have to redeem them uh, you could hypothetically kill the donkey. Absolutely cannot the human child. Now I suppose Peter would have a protest with this. But very clearly the distinction between human and animal is clear. Humans have eternal souls. The country has just gotten completely off track with all of that. That's another sermon for another day. If the owner of the donkey was unwilling to offer a lamb in place of the donkey's foal, meaning unwilling to redeem it before the Lord, the owner had to break uh, the newborn foal's neck. If you're not going to redeem it from the Lord, it doesn't belong to you, it is the Lord's, then you're not going to benefit from it. You have to kill it. Why? Why? Verse 14 answers that. And it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is this? Can you imagine the son? What is this, Dad? Then you shall say to him, with a powerful hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. It came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, Dad would say, I sacrifice to the Lord the males, the first offspring of every womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem. 
So it shall serve as a sign, Scripture says, on your hand, and as phylacteries or frontals, frontal bands on your forehead, for with a powerful hand of the Lord, he brought us up out of Egypt. Now, folks, you're intelligent. You're, you're intelligent people. So you tell me, what does God suggest is going to serve as the sign? In this situation in Exodus, what will serve as the continual reminder to people uh, of God's goodness? Very, very clearly, what you are doing with your hands as you ever either redeem this colt with a lamb and exchange the lamb for your son or for your donkey colt, or if you use those hands to break that colt's neck, that will act as a sign. That will be a billboard of what God has told you to do. Uh, you will see in your eyes God's law executed. You will see obedience execute what God has prescribed in Exodus. That's the sign to your frontals, the sign to your eyes, the sign with your hands. It's the literal act of obedience to the law, the visible sacrifice of a lamb that becomes a sign. And, and when it happens that your son asks, and he will, he'll come and say, Dad, what is this? Why would you kill a, an unblemished lamb or, or a perfectly good donkey colt? When, when that happens, it's going to provide you an occasion in your household to explain to your son and to your family the greatness of God. How he spared the firstborn and how he carried us safely out of Egypt. Application is that simple, folks. That simple. The religious types wrote out this passage and others and stuck it in a leather pouch and duct tape it to their head. That's how they thought you would obey this passage. How, how silly is that? You want to talk about the, the epitome of self-made, fabricated religion. Scripture doesn't tell you to do that. But it's a way that you've construed to obey uh, what you feel uh, is the appropriate response. It's concocted. There are external displays of religion. You can walk around with this on your head, and you can walk around with it on your arm, and, and rather than obeying God internally from the heart. By the time of Jesus, fasting was no longer considered uh, an internal so sorrow over sin, personal sorrow over sin. The Pharisees apparently jettisoned that along with the sackcloth and ashes. I can see why they got rid of that. But they employed just the ritualistic practice of prideful systematic fasting to draw attention to themselves. How religious they were. Along with that, their prayers became very long public displays of outward repetition rather than honest, contrite, private expressions of the heart. This is the culture that Christ has come into, the religious culture. Everything was for show. Their external form of religion, it didn't originate from Scripture. 
just like the phylacteries or their interpretation of the phylacteries. It didn't come from Scripture. They, they fabricated this in their minds, a religion in their minds, and, and they put it all together like a carpenter would put together a, a pine box. Inside it's all just dead bones, a coffin. A pine box, a coffin carrying dead men's bones. Yet they held everyone else to their standard. Their fabricated standard of what they thought was righteous, everyone else had to follow or else. And that's where we find Jesus and his disciples. They're the or else. If they were here today, they would ask, why aren't you in church three nights a week like I am? Why don't you dress the way that I do? Why, why don't you use the same Bible translation as me? And they asked Jesus, Why don't you fast and pray like the Pharisees? And since John the Baptist is in prison at this time, the Pharisees, they, they gained influence over, they even drug John's disciples in on this to their false ideas of piety. That's why Jesus told his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of them. And don't think that we can't fall for it. Don't think that we cannot as well. That's why we're a Christian Bible church, folks. That is the reason we are a Bible church. If you have a personal preference that you enjoy, and you need, your desire is to establish it as primary essential doctrine on everyone else, my question is, show me. Is it in the Bible? And we'll go from there. Show me where it exists in the Bible. In verse 33, the disciples of John fast, the Pharisees fast. Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? In verse 34, Jesus provides them an answer. He says, You cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come... And when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then in those days they will fast. Consistent with what we have learned uh, previously, Jesus affirms fasting is an expression of mourning. It is an expression of sorrow right here. They can't mourn while the bridegroom is with them, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away. They'll fast. That's when they will mourn. That is when they will fast. It's an expression of sorrow. Jesus says, my disciples, they can't fast right now. They, they can't fast, not as long as I'm with them. Have you ever seen a person who is a Christian and they're just perpetually miserable? Always sorrowful. You shouldn't see that. You should not see that. The hallmark of a Christian is to rejoice. To rejoice. Paul says rejoice always. 1 Thessalonians 5.13 Even during fiery trials, Peter says to the degree you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. Christians rejoice. Christians rejoice. When though should we weep and mourn? When should that occur? Mourning comes over personal sin. 
Personal sin. James 4, verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, weep, and mourn. We mourn over sin. We rejoice in Christ. When we fall into sin, we mourn over sin. Paul told Corinth it was appropriate to mourn over their, their immorality and, and their lusting. You'll see in 1 Corinthians twelve twenty one. Compare, compared to rejoicing, mourning is mentioned very little in the New Testament epistles. Very little in comparison. Rejoicing is everywhere. Mourning is seldom mentioned. There is no mention at all of fasting beyond the book of Acts. After the book of Acts, uh, nor anywhere in the pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, or Titus, which give instructions to the church. We rejoice. The very early church in Antioch, you'll probably recall, it did fast. The first time was over sorrow that they had learned that James was martyred in Jerusalem. Very sad times. Very sorrowful times. Uh, Later on, it was because of uh, immense tribulation they were facing. But the book of Revelation says, in the future, we will all mourn. On what occasion will that be? Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, the Apostle Paul has provided a vision of Christ's return as he writes, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him, who are we talking about? Jesus. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. As the people see Christ's return, as they see the one who was pierced return, they will mourn. They will mourn. So Jesus says in Luke 5, verse 35, My disciples cannot mourn while I am with them. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. Get it? Do you see how Jesus directly attaches mourning to fasting? Precisely what we observe in Revelation. When the apostles learn the Son of God has been pierced. That he has suffered for their sins that he hung and died on a cross, oh, they will mourn. They will mourn in those days. When Jesus dies hanging on a cross, they'll wail. They'll lament. They will be in sorrow over the consequences of their sin. Just like Jonah and Nineveh. Mourning and fasting over the consequences, what their sins caused. In, in, the price, in the situation of Nineveh, the destruction of the city, or the pending, the looming destruction of the city. In the case of the disciples, the crucifixion of God's own son. That'll make you mourn. That'll make you fast. In that day they will fast. It won't be as a public exercise, a public demonstration of how great and, and religious and righteous that they are. But it will be a personal expression of sorrow and anguish over the reality of how sinful they are. Humbling and sorrowful. There's nowhere in scripture that suggests uh, the act of systematic fasting causes anyone to be righteous. If it did, the Pharisees would be the most godly people around. 
Because they did it regularly. The act doesn't do that. Uh, If it did, the apostles would have written extensively about it. Trust me. If it was the way that made you righteous, if it sanctified you, the apostles would have a lot to say about it. But they're silent. They don't even mention it in the epistles. Uh, Scripture asserts, I think you're following me here, we are sanctified, we become holy, we grow in Christ's likeness through ingesting the word of God. For all scripture is God-breathed and profitable, right? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So the, the man of God may be adequate or complete, prepared, equipped for every good work. What sanctifies us? What teaches us? Scripture. Scripture is the mechanism. By ingesting the word of God, that is how we become holy and spirit-filled. It's through the word of God, not through, not through a religious exercise. Not through something that we uh, concoct on our own. You might have unforsaken or, or unconfessed sin that you need to lament over. It, it might bring you to a position where you fast. That would be a personal and private conviction for the individual. For Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 17, as we read earlier, but you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men. But your Father who is in secret, uh, but by your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. It's done in secret. It's done in secret. You ever notice how people, when they're fasting, they want the news to trickle out? Spiritual pride. Or or do you ever have the situation when you're fasting and you're you're there and you're like, you know what, I, I, I sure hope that I lose a few pounds over this. That is not a reason for fasting. If that comes into your mind... I mean, red flags, warning signs there. Wrong motive, if you're hoping for that when you're fasting. Bible doesn't tell me as a pastor to forcibly make everybody fast. That's what the Pharisees did by binding heavy yokes upon the disciples' necks. You need to behave like we behave. The Bible never calls me uh, to fast over what the culture is doing. What's going on out in the culture there? If I had to fast over the sins of the culture, folks, I'd never get another bite again. I'd be this big. It's not a mechanism to balance the church budget or or to finance a grand building project. Scripture never represents it as anything other than food. So fasting uh, from TV and chocolates... Uh, during a certain period of the year, completely futile. It's about as effective and silly as duct taping a leather box to your head. That's a fact. Not prescribed in Scripture. Christians never do spiritual exercise for show. Because of the rampant abuse in the time of Christ, his new covenant de-emphasizes the visible, de-emphasizes the visible, and emphasizes the invisible. Christ emphasizes the invisible. 
Just as he underlined in our scripture reading from Matthew chapter 6 where he warned us, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 6 continues by saying, when you or I give to the poor, to a brother who has a financial need that they can't handle on their own, uh, which I hope all of us give at one time or another, it's to be done in secret. So secret, Jesus says, that your right hand doesn't know what your left hand is doing. I'm told some folks, as I don't know, I don't watch what people give, but I'm told some give a, a portion of their a giving each month or seasonally to benevolence. And they mark it in, and the treasurer looks at it, and it's for benevolence fund. That's to extend for people who need money when they come to our church door. Comparatively, the Pharisees they were like blowing trumpets in the streets when they gave. They wanted everybody to notice what they were doing. When it comes to personal prayer, now this is not including corporate prayer, where we're praying together as a group openly or in discipleship groups. That is corporate prayer. That's categorically different. But when God moves your heart to pray personally, when you're going to pray personally from your heart, He says, go into your inner room, Close your door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and He will reward what is done in secret. Comparatively, the Pharisees stood on a street corner. They, they, they broadcast their prayers for everyone. They're praying to people and not to God. They wanted to be seen by men. Jesus insists that the totality of their reward is being seen by men. Enjoy it. That's the totality of your reward. Matthew 6 is the reason. we Actually, we don't have special places up front for people to come and pray during the service. Private prayers. Some call them kneelers. If you need to pray privately during worship, that happens on occasion. That happens. Uh, we don't do it in front of everyone else. You can do it right in your chair. You can dismiss yourself to a back room and close the door and pray. Pray your heart out. That is perfectly appropriate. But prayer is not spirituality put on show. Not private prayers. When you fast, when the personal conviction of sorrow over sin arises for us, we don't put on a gloomy face. We don't neglect our appearance as do the hypocrites to be noticed by men. When your mourning comes to that level where you're that sick over something that you've done or sin that is uh, overtaking you, if you're going to express it through fasting, Jesus says it must be done in secret. Gives no other option. It's got to be done in secret. Scripture is painstakingly clear. Everything the Pharisees did in relationship to religion, their religion, was an outward display without inward conviction. That was the Pharisees' religion. Because of their abuse of the law, their distortion of the law, their hypocrisy, Jesus says that everything his followers do in relationship to God will be an inward conviction without an outward display. Completely new thing going on here, isn't there? Completely new thing. And Jesus supplies an incredibly strong emphasis to all of this. Matthew 6, giving's not only to be done in secret, 
but so secret your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. That's how secret it's supposed to be. Your private prayer is not only to be done privately, but so private that you go into your inner closet and then that you close the door behind you. It's that secret. When fasting, not only do you not show gloom, but when you fast, you strive to improve your appearance by anointing your head and washing your face. Discreetness. Discreetness. Complete opposite of what the Pharisees were doing. How is Jesus preaching now? How is what he is teaching? How is that going to mesh with what the Pharisees are practicing? Not, is it? It's not. It it isn't going to fit. It, It will not fit. The two methodologies, they aren't even compatible. They are not compatible. The old covenant was a very visible covenant that had been distorted to become even more visible. Sacrifices in the temple, the showbread, the burning of incense, the vestiges of the, of the priests, all of that good stuff that, that taught people about God had been distorted. The wave offerings, they were given to put on display the greatness of God, but sinful and corrupt man distorted the law of the word of God to put on a display of greatness of self. No longer was a display of God's greatness. Jesus says, nope. It isn't going to work that way. With the new covenant, no more religious display by men. No more making a show of yourself. You'll provide a one-time believer baptism to publicly profess your faith in Christ. That is a one-time. And there will be a periodic celebration of the Lord's Supper where Christ's sacrifice is the only thing that's going to be on display through the bread and through the cup. That's what's put on display, is Christ and his sacrifice. Functionally, the old system and the new systems, uh, new system, they, they can't function together. They will not work together. They are not compatible. You have to be out with the old and in with the new. So in verse 36, Jesus told them this parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will tear both the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. I'm taking for granted that you know that as wine ferments, it will stretch and weaken the skins. Uh, as it, and it becomes an old skin and old wine. If you put in new wine again, it will stretch it again and break it. That's what he's talking about there. Um, the new garment can't be sewn to the old garment. The old garment represents the old covenant, the Mosaic law, how things were done in the Old Testament. Uh, both Matthew and Mark, by the way, if you go and look at their uh, records of this, they mention that the old garment was rent. It was torn. It was torn through the abuse of the Pharisees. The old covenant had been rent. It had been torn. Jesus didn't come to patch that up, folks. He's not a patch on that. By patching the old, he says, the tear would only be worsened. If you look at Matthew and Mark, it'll it'll be worse because they don't fit together. You, You don't need to patch the old. 
What you need is a whole new garment. What you need is to put on the righteousness of Christ. You don't need the old. This is entirely new wine. It's a a brand new thing. Are the Pharisees going to be able to swallow it? No. No, their, their heads would probably burst. They can't swallow this. Only there would be Pharisees like Nicodemus, if you remember, who Jesus said, you must be born again. It looks like in Scripture that he later comes to trust in Christ. There will be those who, by God's grace, are born again by the Spirit. They'll abandon their old traditions and embrace the new covenant with Christ. Nicodemus eventually did that. But not by stitching it to the old. He didn't stitch what he learned in Christ, the new, to the old. The old pharisaical way of doing things. He embraced the new covenant, which scripture says demands a new heart. Requires a new heart. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Easy one to remember. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. See, the new is not like that old one. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, but this is the new covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. He will write it in the secret place of the heart. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's the relationship of the new covenant with God. In order to be satisfied in a relationship with God through this covenant, you can't rely on outward displays of self-righteousness. It's a hidden relationship in your heart. The Pharisees can't accept this. Overall, will they abandon their traditions and the old rent garment? That the old covenant was good, but they had distorted it and torn it? Will they abandon that? No. They've been drinking the old wine too long. They're too used to it. They like the old rent garment. Luke 5, verse 39. And no one, after drinking the old wine, wishes for new, Jesus says. They say, yeah, the old's good enough. (laughs) That's what the Pharisees say. Ah, the old's good enough. Problem is, the old's not good enough. Folks, it's not good enough. They only think in their minds that it's good enough. But the dispensation of the new covenant of God's grace, it's, it's appearing now in the life of Christ. Right before their eyes, the new covenant is emerging. And comparing the old and the new covenants, the writer of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah, that same verse I just read, Uh, Jeremiah the prophet, while detailing this transition from the old to the new, Hebrews 8, verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. That's right. If the the blood of bulls and goats could have saved anyone from their sins, why would God send his son to die? Just let the blood of bulls and uh, goats cover it. No, the old wasn't good enough. The Old Testament merely offered a covering, an atonement for sins for a season. 
But the writer of Hebrews continues, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord. Sound familiar? When he says, The first covenant, if it had been faultless, faultless, there wouldn't have been a need for a new one. And then he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant. I will put my law into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And I will remember their sins no more. And in Hebrews 8, verse 13, the same writer explains, When God said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear, the writer of Hebrews says. The old is obsolete. There is no stitching of the new covenant into the old. They can't work together. The letter of the Hebrews, it was written shortly before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. When it was written, the temple was still standing. And there were still sacrifices being given day in and day out. And the letter was written to Hebrews because of the suffering and the persecution that that these Jews who had become Christians were experiencing. And, And these Jews who had accepted Christ started experiencing this intense persecution that you read about in Hebrews. And it tempted them to go back to the old. They wanted to abandon Christ and return to practicing the old covenant sacrifices. The writer's argument, it's impossible to do that. Impossible to do that. It's old. The old is obsolete, soon to disappear altogether. Within a short time of the writing of Hebrews, Jerusalem, and the temple, they were completely destroyed by the Roman army under Titus in 70 AD. Temple completely destroyed. Jerusalem leveled. There's no one going back to the old folks. There's no return to Judaism. Even today, it is still impossible, impossible for a Jew to practice Judaism according to the old covenant. Impossible. There is no temple. There is no order of priests. There is no brazen altar uh, by which to offer up the sacrifices the ongoing sacrifices year after year. There's no place for the high priest to enter on the Day of Atonement. It's obsolete. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. No more sacrifices. In fact, in his sovereignty, get this, God allowed, in his sovereignty, I don't know why it's there, I don't really like it being there, but God allowed a big old golden dome to be erected on the top of the on the top of the temple mount and politically to this day Israel still is not allowed to rebuild that temple why it's obsolete folks it's obsolete you're not going back to that and and if that if that dome actually does come down uh, at some point we're not yet raptured get ready Get ready, because we're close. Israel says they will rebuild that temple uh, if they're able to. There's no putting new wine back into the old wineskins. That would only make the old wineskin burst. And then all the, all the new wine would just be lost anyhow. It would be of no benefit to the old wineskin. The old wine's not good enough. Uh, this is the only context by which you can co- correctly understand the book of Hebrews is that you had ethnic Jews who were wanting to depart from Christ and go back to the old. That's why you have those warning passages in Hebrews, right? 
Uh, Jews have been provided, uh, the Jews have been provided the truth of the gospel in Christ. Hebrews 10.26, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, that is of the gospel, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Get it? Back at the temple, no sacrifice available anymore for sins. And if people who willfully set aside the law of Moses, the writer says, that would have been during the time of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, if they died without mercy, verse 29, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? He's telling those Jews, what kind of punishment you think you'll get exposed to Christ and the truth of the gospel and you think you're going to go back to that? Scripture says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, right? That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. This parable, folks, it's not provided as an explanation to what is the wine and what is the wineskins. That, that, that's not to explain that. It's not to explain that. The whole reason for the parable is for Jesus to provide an illustration to answer their question. Their question is, why don't your disciples fast? The question is about legitimate reasons for fasting. It's not about wine. It's not about wineskins. It's about the pharisaical distortion of the Old Covenant and their traditions that they have formulated. The Scripture says they're willing to lead people to hell to preserve. They'd be, in order to preserve their traditions, they'd be willing that people go to hell. That's how much they love their traditions. But the question is about fasting. Biblically, fasting has always been an expression of sorrow and grief. You can't take a religious practice with a known purpose in the Old Testament like fasting and assign to it some new arbitrary reason in the New Testament. You can't come up with that in your head. Well, I'm going to fast for this reason. You can't do that. You're doing the same thing that the Pharisees are doing. Strapping something to your head. The Old Testament uh, tradition of the Pharisees distorted it into an exercise of making you holy. I'm shocked today, folks, at people who make the same error. The same error. I'm fasting because I think that makes me holy. And if you don't fast, then you're not holy. We have to be careful of traditions that are fabricated by men. Um, Whatever tradition it is, folks, that is preventing you from receiving the grace of Christ, the truth of Christ in God, you need to put it away. Folks, you need to put it away. The old wineskins of the law, that self-righteous legalism, they can't hold the new wine. The forgiveness in Christ. There's no way you can make the new covenant fit into the old wineskins of your fabricated system. You have to come to Christ. There's no shortage of people trying to to do that. That's That's a new sermon for a new day. There's all kinds of people trying to fit Christ into the old temple sacrifices, into the Old Testament law. They're Judaizers in our day. Paul fought, about, fought against this in Galatians. Throughout his whole ministry, Paul fought against people who were trying to take the grace of God and stuff it into the old wineskins. 
They tried to make him get circumcised. They tried to tell him what they could and couldn't eat. They tried to tell him what day you had to worship on. That will be our next message after the first of the year from this text, the Sabbath. They were trying to put people under the law, but those who attempt to be justified under the law, the old wineskins, if they think that they've gotten the new wine, the new covenant, if they're trying to put it into their old wineskin, it's no good. It'll bust and the new wine will be lost. The new covenant will be lost. It cannot work together. It will, it will spill out on the ground and become completely useless to you if you're trying to put it into your own set of law. That's where we'll pick up next week, uh, or next year, on the Sabbath and what that looks like today. Let's pray. Father, help us to, Lord, understand uh, your mighty hand how powerful you are, Lord, as you led up uh, your people out of Egypt and as you, by your mighty hand, freed them, Lord, from bondage. So too, as we look through Scripture in the book of Acts, the apostles were continually striving for liberty in Christ. As Peter said uh, at, at the Jerusalem Council, that, Lord, we know that was debating circumcision and the law, And Peter said, how can we uh, put the disciples under a yoke that neither us nor our forefathers could bear? Lord, let us not do the same thing. Lord, by putting people under bondage. Help us to live in grace, not to be abusers of grace, but not to be preachers of the law either, Lord. We know it is a tutor that leads people to Christ. And Lord, that's what we pray here together, that they would, people would know they are sinners, that they would uh, need to know Christ as Savior, and that as we celebrate this Christmas season, Father, that uh, you will uh, be working in their hearts through your Spirit, that people would be made alive and be given a new heart. Lord, to know your will, that your law would be written on their heart. Uh, Lord, that we might live holy lives, Lives that look like Jesus as we put away our sinful past and strive to live a life pleasing to you, Lord, like your son did. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for this week as we prepare to celebrate the birth of your son. Thank you for uh, the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.